Let's open the Word of God, please, to First Peter, which is uh, toward the back of the, old, uh, of the New Testament, excuse me. And don't be afraid to use your table of contents ever. That's why it's there. But hopefully over the next few months we'll get pretty familiar with where First Peter is. It's only five chapters, and yet it's an incredible book. And I hope you'll agree with that as we go through this study. An obscure but profound Christian thinker once said that every believer he knew was either in a crisis, just coming out of a crisis, or just about to go into a crisis. And while he usually says that tongue-in-cheek with a bit of hyperbole, I think it's true enough that each one of us here uh, who are believers in Christ can, uh, in our minds, easily apply the concept of faith under fire. Faith under fire for Jack uh, would probably be something different than faith under fire for me. But it would include things like uh, facing sudden, big, unexpected tragedy in our lives or in the lives of people that are close to us and dear to us. It might be the loss of a job, the loss of our health, the loss of a marriage, uh, the loss of a relationship we held very dear. Uh, for a middle school student, it might be uh, self-appointed cool kids deciding that you don't exist, or maybe even worse, deciding that you will be the target of their insults and their bullying. Um, for us Christians living in modern America, or better, postmodern America, uh, the reality is we are kind of a marginalized, uh, misunderstood, uh, and sometimes dehumanized minority group. I mean, you realize that most of the stars in mass media today, <clears throat> including in the movies, television, music, as well as most of the elites in the uh, political and academic arena, uh, see us as vestiges of uh, uh, a dusty past where people actually believed in God and believed in miracles and and uh, really we're kind of at our best, we're just kind of ignorant and backward and at our worst, we're really kind of the cause for all this guilt that causes all these social problems in our culture. Now, the original readers of First Peter dealt with those kind of things, but they they were dealing with much worse things, at least physically speaking, because the readers of 1 Peter are refugees because of their faith, because of, they've identified themselves with Jesus Christ, Kitty. They've been forced to leave their jobs, leave their pensions, uh, to flee from where they lived hundreds of miles away, to get away from physical persecution, arrest, torture, and even execution. And so we're going to be looking at a book for the next several months that deal with uh, what should Carol Wander do when her faith is under fire? What should Pam Cox do when her faith is under fire? Uh, and maybe more importantly, what should Brad McCoy do when his faith is under fire? And this book deals very practically uh, and yet with great theological depth with that, that issue. So that's kind of the umbrella under which we will approach this book. Uh, talking about being under fire... Uh, Dr. Pat Kate suggests that about 5% of the 
1.6 billion Muslims in the world are what he calls violent fundamentalists. Now, out of that 5%, uh, most don't have the means nor the opportunity to blow up very much near and dear to our hearts, but many of them have the motive. And so we live in a very dangerous world in which religion is not irrelevant at all, but they're very different. And so, uh, you know, as is our custom, let's pray that we'll be teachable to God's truth this morning. And also we want to pray for those who serve and protect, including firefighters and peace officers and certainly our active military. And uh, Von Driggs, would you pray for our teachability today and pray for those folks that protect us and serve us? Thank you. Uh, just to warm up our capacity for abstract thinking, how about some life lessons from Noah's Ark? Number one, never miss the boat. Number two, it's not a bad idea to travel in pairs. Just a practical tip. Speed isn't always critical. Uh, remember that the two snails made it to the ark just in time, just as well as the cheetahs did. So that's good to know. I mean, for a basketball coach, you want speed, but sometimes some of us are slow and it all works out. Uh, I didn't say these were funny or anything like that. I just said, you know, they're kind of uh, designed to make you think. Uh, common folk can do great things. The ark was built by amateurs. The Titanic was built by professionals. And then, this is my favorite one, no matter how big the storm we're in, when God's purposes for it are over, there's always a rainbow waiting. And, you know, there are some scars we can suffer on earth that can't be healed this side of heaven. And, uh, you know, I know skeptical people don't like this, but the now... uh will not, does not, and cannot make sense apart from the not yet based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's it, people. You know, which is why First Peter basically says, no matter what happens to you, you got to doubt your doubts and keep on trusting and obeying the Lord even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason. And for those of you listening uh, on audio, I'm putting air quotes around earthly reason. Keep on Trusting and obeying the Lord, Russell, no matter what happens to you, um, even when there doesn't appear to be any earthly reason to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. That's kind of our first general order. And, well, why should I do that? Uh, look at the empty tomb, man. That's why. I, I don't think God loves me anymore. Look at the cross. I mean, what more can he say? You know, uh, God demonstrated his love toward us, Anthony, on your worst day. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He who knew no sin was made to be a sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Uh, we want to talk about uh, the structure and the overall message of First Peter today, Scott. But let me deal with a couple of preliminary questions first. Uh, first of all, why would we spend several months? And Trevor, you need to know this. Why would we? Why would you and I spend the next several months looking pretty closely at this? Um, 2,000-year-old document that is in your New Testament. It's called 1 Peter. Why would we do that? Well, it really goes back to what 1 Peter is, to the unique character of this document. Uh, 1 Peter is one of 66 books in the Bible, and it's there not just because it was written by an apostle, which it was, and that's amazing on its face that we've got a document that's been preserved that was written by one of the apostles, but it's more than that. 
It's so important to us because this was a divinely inspired text. It's not just inspiring. I mean, there are a lot of films that are inspiring. There are a lot of things you can read in uh, Reader's Digest or even People Magazine that can be inspiring. But just because something's inspiring doesn't mean it's inspired. I mean, we just dare to believe, as Christians have for 2,000 years, that the, the books of the Scripture are uniquely inspired by God. And uh, Charles Ryrie defines or describes inspiration this way. God the Holy Spirit uniquely superintended the human authors of the biblical book. So we got Peter, the apostle, Peter, James, and John. This is Peter who walked with Jesus for three years, who saw the resurrected Christ, who himself would be executed for the faith. Inspiration is God the Holy Spirit uniquely superintending the human authors of the biblical books, including Peter as he wrote First Peter, such that they composed and recorded the exact message that God desired as timeless scripture in the words of the original manuscript. So you've got a lot of things going on here. You've got this class A miracle of inspiration. You've got a class B miracle of preservation of the text for a couple thousand years. Then you've got the hard work of translation. And then you've got for us what Angie needs and what Homer needs and what Anthony and Brad need. You've got the work of the Holy Spirit called illumination. I mean, anybody, Rudolf Bultmann, uh, who was... uh, kind of a ultra-left uh, biblical scholar in the 20th century, did some amazing work diagramming the sentences of Ephesians and Romans in the Gospel of John, but he had no illumination. He just processed all that as dusty old manuscripts at a literary level. We're not interested in just Russell learning more facts about the Bible so you can win Bible trivia you know, at the pub on Friday nights. What we're interested in is you processing transforming truth that comes out of this text. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in because He'll illuminate so that we can understand it, believe it, and move it from our head to our heart, from information to transforming truth that is the basis of our priorities, our choices, our focus, our perspective, everything. And a big part of that is realizing the now doesn't make sense apart from the not yet. But that's okay. we got a resurrected Savior who went through the valley of the shadow, and who will accompany us, escort us through it as well, if we dare to trust in Him. Now, uh, so God the Holy Spirit uniquely superintended the human authors. That's, by the way, that's a that's not a photograph. That's an artist's representation of Peter beginning to write First Peter, and he wouldn't have put First Peter on top of it. Those are those are labels. Trevor, Ephesians, Romans, First Peter. Those are labels we've attached to these books so we can find them and describe them. He just wrote. In Greek, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, writing this to those who reside as aliens, as refugees because of your faith. And then he goes on from there. So Peter is inspired in that sense, such that the exact message God wanted for timeless scripture, so it applies to Nicole or Zane today in, what is it, 2017? Is that possible? February 2017? Wow. Uh, and that's what you got there. Dr. Ryrie, who didn't write the Bible, you know, I was actually at Dallas Seminary when the full form, the original form of the Ryrie Study Bible came out, and you know, Zondervan came and gave him like a golden Bible at chapel that day and all that stuff. And uh, 
you know, the Ryrie Study Bible, which many of us have. He didn't write it. He just wrote some notes about what some of the texts mean. But his quote about the Bible is this. The Bible is the greatest of all books. To study it, the noblest of all pursuits. To understand it, the highest of all goals. So, yeah, we're, we're going to focus on this portion of Scripture because it is Scripture. It's God's Word written and it's critically important uh, to us. And all of the stuff I just mentioned there is not just validated because something Charles Ryrie wrote 2,000 years after the fact or something Martin Luther said about the text or John Calvin or Charles uh, Wesley or Peter or Paul. Although, Scott, Peter talks about Paul's epistles in the fraternal twin of 1st Peter, which we're going to call 2nd Peter, chapter 3, Peter talks about, watch out, those skeptics distort the scripture, and they even do it to the scriptures, including Paul's letters. Peter is affirming that Paul's letters were scripture, and therefore could be distorted. In 1st uh, Timothy, Paul quotes the Gospel of Luke, and at that point, uh, the Gospel of Luke couldn't have been more than a year or two old, Ron. And, uh, and uh, excuse me, Paul's already quoting Luke as Scripture. So uh, this isn't just something that Dallas Seminary invented in the 20th century or Charles Ryrie affirmed uh, in the 21st century. This is affirmed uh, throughout uh, history. And most importantly, the uniqueness in the priority of Scripture is affirmed by the wisest person who ever lived, and you're going to think, that's Solomon. Now, this is somebody even higher classification. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm reading from a book by a French scholar, René Pache, called The Inspiration and Authority of Scripture. And he says, Jesus emphasized the importance of each word of Scripture. Quote, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the word to fall. That's Jesus in Luke 16, 17. Jesus placed the text of Scripture on the same plane as His own words, divine and infallible, which they themselves will never pass away. Matthew 25, 35. Jesus had constant reference to the Scriptures. In His struggle against the temptations of Satan, He answered three times, it is written, and then quoted from three passages in Deuteronomy. In his discussion with his theological opponents, Jesus constantly repeated things like, have you not read what David did? Have you not read what's written about honoring God in the Scriptures? Have you not read that He who made them from the beginning made them male and female? Did you never read in the Scriptures? Have you not read what was spoken to you by God in the Scriptures? Uh, What then is this that is written in the Scriptures? Is it not written in your law? Jesus began his ministry referring to a passage in Isaiah, which says, and he gets up in the synagogue of Nazareth, and he says, uh, the Spirit of God is upon me so that I can preach the gospel to the poor. And he closes the scroll, and Jesus then says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. After the resurrection, Jesus did not go back on the unconditional confirmation which he had given to the scriptures in the days of his ministry. On the contrary, He interpreted the Scriptures to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then again to the assembled apostles. The same things he said concerning himself in all the Scriptures. And he says, uh, the things concerning himself in all the Scriptures, beginning from Moses and from all the prophets and in the Psalms. Christ confirmed the accounts 
in Holy Scripture. Watch this. In the most explicit and natural way, Jesus made detailed references to events in the Old Testament. It's plain he did not regard these to be myths or legends, but obvious historical facts. He refers to the creation of the first couple, to the murder of Abel, to Noah and the ark and the flood, to the role of Abraham and his faith in the plan of salvation, to the destruction of Sodom, to the salvation of Lot, uh, to the historicity of Isaac and Jacob, to the calling of Moses, the manna in the wilderness, the brazen serpent in the wilderness, the account of David eating the showbread in the tabernacle, the historicity of the Queen of Sheba, the wisdom and glory of Solomon, uh, the fact of Elijah and uh, the miracle of the widow, the uh, miracle of Elisha, Elijah's protege, and Naaman the leper, uh, Jonah and the people of Nineveh, the wickedness of Tyre and Sidon, the death of Zechariah before the altar in the sanctuary, and the prophecies of Daniel. Jesus just cites all this stuff as evidently true because Scripture says it. Uh, Jesus, it would seem, deliberately authenticated the kinds of passages of Scripture many attack today. We've just seen that he attested to the accounts of Adam and Eve, the flood, Jonah, Daniel, uh, from whom he took his title, the Son of Man, from Daniel 7.13. He likewise confirmed the authority and unity of Isaiah, making no distinction between the first and second parts of the book. And as you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls backs us up on that as well, which is nice. Bottom line, according to Pache, it's nice to find a French scholar you can actually quote. Just so you know, it's hard, you know. It's been taking me 28 years, you know. So I'm going to read the whole thing here. Um, almost done. I know it's boring, boring to listen to somebody read, especially who reads like me, poorly as I do. Uh, Jesus established the perfect sufficiencies of the Scripture to lead people to salvation. In regard to the brothers of the wicked rich man in Luke 16, Jesus declared, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Old Testament Scriptures written by Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he says, if you won't listen to that, they won't believe even if somebody rises from the dead. So Jesus was all in on the authority and the importance of Scripture. And I would suggest, uh, I know it's not cool to be upfront about that nowadays. I know exposition's not the way to go to draw a crowd. But we could do no less, man, in season and out of season. Now let's talk from the character of Scripture to kind of the New Testament context of this particular book. Uh, if you can't flip to your table of contents there, let's do that just for a second. And this is, of course, just a, a listing of the 27 New Testament books. And some of you have seen this before. Uh, this is not the order in which they were written. It's just kind of a logical order uh, after the fact that, that they've been arranged just to kind of help us do the story. So you've kind of got the life of Christ and then the first generation of the church. And then you've got letters, Romans through Jude, or letters written to Christians or to churches that talk about... Uh, the essence of the faith and the way we're to live out our faith. And then we've got a book about the way the plan of God will end leading to eternity. But if you look at this, you've got the first five books are holy history. They're inspired history books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, talk about the ministry of Christ. Uh, J. Warner Wallace, who's a homicide detective in Los Angeles County, who'd been an atheist uh, after applying kind of the principles that he would take when he'd get four separate eyewitnesses to a crime. 
and the things you learn about how four different witnesses will talk about the same event in different ways because they're going to remember certain details differently or they remember some things the other guy doesn't mention. Uh, he applied those kind of uh, principles that he used to process eyewitness testimony to the four Gospels. And he said, this stuff rings true. This is the kind of stuff that you get if four separate witnesses are accurately reporting what they saw. So uh, that's what you get from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are 27 uniquely inspired books. They're inspiring, but they're more than inspiring. They're divinely inspired. The The fifth historical book, the Holy History book, isn't about the ministry of Jesus. It's about the next 30 years after the ministry of Jesus. And we, in the last couple of years, just recently have gone through that entire book, the book of Acts of the Apostles. That's five books there. The next 21 books, Romans through Jude, are epistles. Now, Trevor, when I first went to seminary, I was so dumb. I thought the epistles were the wives of the apostles. But that's not right. The word epistle just means a letter. Okay? Today you'd say an email or a tweet, but back then they wrote letters. And uh, notice that Paul's Paul writes, the apostle Paul, under inspiration, writes 13 New Testament books. Romans through Titus. Uh, Philemon, I should say, right? There's 13, I think. We won't take the time to count them, but this 13 is an unlucky number. That's okay. I'm not, I'm not superstitious. I'm just a little stitious. So, yeah, but nobody ever laughs at that. I thought that was hysterical. Uh, Eli, Eli Manning is the first guy I heard say that. And I thought, that is great. I got to remember that. Uh, I'll give you one my mom gave me on the phone yesterday. Uh, I do have both oars in the water. But they don't go down real deep. That's what she says. So that's where I'm coming from too. But um, by convention, the labels for Paul's books, he writes 13 of them. It's a whole bunch, you know. So you wouldn't put 1st Paul, 2nd Paul, 3rd Paul, 4th Paul, 12th Paul, 13th Paul. It would be too confusing. So by convention, we labeled the books that, that Paul wrote based on the original recipients. So the letter from the Apostle Paul under inspiration originally for the church in Rome, is called the Book of Romans because they were the first ones to read it. They were the original uh, readers. Uh, Paul wrote two letters to the church in Corinth. So we call the first one 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Uh, Galatians is the one book Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia. And it goes on like that. So that's Romans through Philemon. Philemon, of course, is an individual. Paul wrote an epistle to about a runaway slave who became a Christian, Onesimus. Book of Hebrews is kind of in a special category. We're not sure he even wrote that. Probably uh, Barnabas is my best guess, but we find out in heaven. But the other letters that aren't Pauline, James through Jude, are named by convention, just so we can find them, based on their human author. So First Peter is the first of two inspired letters that Peter wrote. Second uh, John is the second of three inspired letters that are in the Bible because they're inspired, not because in 325 people in, Cal- uh, in uh, Nicaea decided to make them the Bible. Uh, so Second John is the second of three inspired letters that are biblical, that are timeless. They're just as impactful for Ken Wanger as they were for Peter, James, and John. It's called Second John, and then Jude is written by uh, Jesus' half-brother, Judas, or for short, Jude. And then the last book there, course, is a prophetic book uh, written by the Apostle John in about 95, 96 A.D. But there's First Peter right there. 
So 1 Peter is the first of two inspired letters that Peter wrote that God has preserved and that you've got on your phone or in a, in a paper Bible. Uh, that's there 24-7 and it'll never change. And sometimes we take that for granted. Here's the structure of the book of 1 Peter. And it's kind of an interesting structure because uh, invariably the writers of the Bible will kind of give you their purpose explicitly somewhere in their book. They'll just tell you at the beginning, uh, in the middle, or the end. And we typically look in the in the beginning for a purpose statement. I mean, First John's got a purpose statement at the beginning. Uh, the uh, Gospel of John has a purpose statement at the end. This book has a purpose statement in the middle. Look at the, that purpose statement. Look at uh, chapter 2, 11 through 12. You really have... Uh, Two major parts of the book, and then right in the middle, at the pivot of the book, you've got this purpose statement. But basically, this whole book is written for this reason. Look at chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Let me read it from the New American Standard, then I'll give you my paraphrase. Beloved, these are believers he's talking to. Uh, I urge you as aliens, you've heard of legal aliens, you know, illegal aliens. We're going to look at that word in a minute, it's very important. I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from fleshly lust. Now, we tend to think of lust as uh, sexuality outside of the bounds of marriage. But the, the Greek term there, epithumia, just means a strong desire, period. And you can have a lust for life or a, a, a lust for spirituality. We don't really use the term, an English term that way. But you could have an epithumia for a lot of good things. You ought to have an epithumia for your spouse, you know. You ought to have that. But so, so it's not necessarily a bad thing, but he's talking about fleshly lusts that aren't necessarily just sexual, although that include that. But how about just the desire to be noticed, to get your way? Uh, you're very implacable and very self-impressed, and your lust for life is so everybody will tell you how great you are. A lot of people operate like that. He's just saying, hey, as a believer, put that stuff away. That's no way to live the Christian life, because that wages against your soul, your spiritual um, health. But instead, keep your behavior excellent, especially among those who are slandering us and dehumanizing us and marginalizing us and misrepresenting who we are and what we do among the unbelievers. Keep your behavior excellent. Show up for time on time. Do your work. Uh, be a contributor to everything you're involved in, including committees and boards you're serving on and all this stuff that may be very secular as we tend to categorize that. Really, everything is sanctified when we see the Lordship of Christ in all things. So that in the very thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, the the consistency and character in which you approach your life, including all these mundane things you have to do, as they observe them, end up glorifying God in the day of visitation. My suggested paraphrase, which is in your notes there, as spiritual aliens, now let's think about that for a minute. Go back to chapter 1, verse 1. He uses this term at the very beginning of the book, and then in the purpose statement, he repeats it. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, writing this letter under inspiration, originally to those Christians who reside as aliens, scattered hundreds of miles from their homes and their pensions and their jobs and their extended families throughout northern and western Turkey, is what we'd say today. But if I were going to say, 
Looky here, look at that verse 1, that word alien or refugees, you could translate it. Go back to the purpose statement, chapter 2, verse 11. I urge you as aliens, strangers, refugees. That that word that's rendered aliens in the New American Standard, uh, par epidemoi, means this according to one scholar. This word describes temporary residents in a particular location as opposed to permanent settlers who have a higher allegiance to that other place they're really attached to. Okay, That's a good description of Angie Lovett's Christian life. I mean, Angie is a happening lady. She just got back from Africa. Okay, She's you know a genius with people and a genius with physical therapy. And she's a wonderful person and she's all over the place. And man, she just outdoes herself every time. And that must be tiring to be that busy and that good at everything. But she realizes, as the old hymn says, you know, this earth is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Now, that doesn't mean we should be so heavenly minded we're no earthly good because the now is real and it's really important. But it's uh, only temporary and it's not ultimate. And he's urging us to have a much bigger perspective on life than your current crisis. And everybody's either in one, just coming out of one, or just about to go into one. Okay, And we don't belittle that or say that doesn't count or it doesn't hurt. But there are some scars that cannot be healed this side of heaven. And we're only here temporarily. Even if you live to be 110, you're only here temporarily compared to the blip of eternity. So go back. Let's look at the structure of this book. Basically, we've got like Christian living under fire 101 in the first part of the book. Then we got the purpose statement right in the middle of the book. And then we have Christian living under fire 102 at the end of the book. And we start with a summary of Christian faith and Christian works. And we end up with an emphasis on submission in the Christian life, even to human non-Christian authority figures. With submission or respect to authority, in my opinion, this is anecdotal, is at an all-time low in our culture in my lifetime. I mean, you will not believe the lack of respect people have toward teachers, police officers, clergy people, uh, coaches. It's unbelievable. They're not everybody, but increasingly. That's a big, big problem, and it's not sustainable for a culture very much longer. In uh, that passage, this, this portion of the book says, hey, respect your boss. Well, he's not a Christian, and he cusses a lot. Respect your boss. If you feel like the abuse is such and you're working for him, you can always get another job. You're not a slave. You can quit. If you are a slave, you need to make the best of a bad situation. Okay? Always. Always trying to make, uh, when you get, what's the, what does it say, Kitty, if you get lemons, you make lemonades? Those are lim- lemonades. Lemonade. Just one at a time. Okay? And then suffering the Christian life, which, you know, by definition, these people have lost their jobs and their pensions, so suffering is the under, the umbrella under which all this content uh, is taught, but ultimately ends up emphasizing uh, how we should think about and respond to suffering in the Christian life. Let's look at a, just a couple of especially uh, important statements in this book based on that structure we're suggesting. Look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's a five-star general, Scott. An apostle was somebody who had been with Jesus, who'd seen the resurrected Jesus, and was given unique authority over the first century church, first generation church. There haven't been apostles in that sense since since John died. Okay, They're very unique. They're foundational. Jesus being the chief cornerstone. 
Peter, a five-star general, Jesus Christ, writing this under inspiration of those who reside as aliens. They're really from somewhere else and their allegiance transcends uh, the place they're living now. Now, by the way, hey, the reason these boring geographical names are all over, all over the Bible is to emphasize one thing. Anthony, we're talking about real people, real places, real events, okay? This is not... Uh, Part of the expression, Book of Mormon, where they're making up stuff that never happened and you can't find any archaeological verification of any of the sites they talk about. These are real places. Uh, turns out that what we call modern Turkey right there uh, was broken down into different regions and provisional uh, jurisdictions by the ancient Romans. Uh, Peter is in Rome as he writes his book in about 63 or 64 A.D., of course, the events of the Gospels take place in and around Jerusalem, as you know. But he's writing to Christians who had lived in and around Antioch of Syria and have been forced to go to places like, and these are historical places you can find out and read about in any good history book uh, based on uh, first century ge- uh, geographical and political boundaries, uh, scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. Now, you know, you've got to interpret the Bible in the time it was, it was written, Carlos. So, you know, if, uh, you and I could say in, uh, 2004, several of us went to Asia on a mission trip, right? And we're talking about China, North and North Korea. Uh, but when Peter or Paul talks about Asia, they're not talking about China or everything east of the Urals. They're talking about this little sliver of what we would call Turkey which is what the Romans called Asia. It was their uh, political designation for that one little set. You know, but you go back and you look and good night, you know, all the stuff we can read in the historical record that breaks these uh, areas down is what he's talking about. So he's talking about uh, this content to folks that he's heard about. He may not even know them personally, but they were living here because of persecution. They've been spread throughout uh, Pontus, Bithynia, Asia, Galatia, Cappadocia, that kind of thing. So this is real uh, historical data, real people, real events, all this stuff really happened. Uh, verse 2, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey, and that term for obey means to obey the call of the gospel to believe Christ, to obey Christ, believe in the gospel, and thus be sprinkled with his blood. That's a metaphor for receiving the benefits of his atonement so that you're forgiven uh, and good to go for heaven. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Now look, he's talking to people who've lost their jobs, their pensions. He's going to deal with their suffering. He's not denying it, but he doesn't start there. He acknowledges it and says, look at the big picture. Okay, I know you're facing excruciating circumstances but you still have something to be thankful for that's bigger than your circumstances, that's bigger than a now. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the one who died for our sins and rose again? So he's pretty important. Who, according to his great mercy, caused us to be born again to a living hope. Hope is faith projected forward, looking forward to something. Uh, And ultimately, our hope is seeing and being in the blessed, loving presence of Jesus, not because we've been so good to him, but because he's been so good to us, okay? And I know that uh, when, su- when when Sunday school is over 
and Arya comes running to her parents. That's a joy for her and a joy for them. I get a little feel of that when uh, Cooper or Peter or Vivian and Lincoln are here, and it's always very painful for them to separate from Papa during the going out song. But boy, it's sweet at the end of a wonderful day at church to be to hear the patter of little feet. And as long as they don't knock Maxine over, I'm happy. And then they grab my legs and they say, let's go get some jelly beans. And I'll say, yeah, that's an awesome idea. Let's go, man. Love it. I love that. So in that sense, when those guys are here on a Sunday, I have a special hope that morning. I'm looking forward to seeing them in a couple hours, and they always seem to be so happy to see Papa. Because at my household, we didn't, when, when we had two little boys, I was the bad cop. The buck stopped here. And Debbie was the good cop. But we've totally flipped roles now. <laughs> Debbie has the rules. She has the regulations. They have to pick up. I'm the good cop. I, I can do no wrong. You know, I go home and I tell their parents how great Papa is, you know. Was Grandma there? Yeah, she was there, you know. So, it feels good. You know, it's not a great way to raise your kids, but... Uh, but I wouldn't follow that if you're a parent, but it's working for me. Uh, that's what our hope is. Looking forward to being in the presence, presence of Jesus, the loving presence of Jesus. He's going to be happy we're there. He's going to, he says, hey, uh, behold, I'm coming suddenly and my reward is with me to give you what you deserve. It's like he can't wait to give you a reward, Bond. He just can't wait to give it to you. I just can't wait to give those kids those jelly beans, you know. And those aren't jelly beans. Those are ministry facilitators. Just for the uh, that's what I'm going to tell the IRS. You know, when I take that, take that off my taxes. Uh, now, actually, we've been going through so many jelly beans. I I didn't want to do this for a couple, but just in the last couple of months, I've decided these things were disappearing so fast. This is definitely church expense. So now I use the church credit card to buy my jelly beans. So, uh, but I bought I bought a lot of jelly beans just out of my own pocket for a long time. But no more. Okay. But, you know. For, what, seven times 70? You know, whatever it is. You know, after the 491st jelly bean bag, I said, no, church is going to pay for this from now on. Verse 6. In this, uh, your hope, the heavenly inheritance you have, the fact that salvation isn't probation, basically is what he says in 3 through 5. In this, you greatly rejoice. Joy transcends happiness. Even though now for a little while, you're distressed by various trials. I realize you're under the gun. I realize your face under fire. I'm not belittling that, but I'm giving you something bigger uh, in which you should immerse the way you think about and process your trials. And all this is being used in order to promote the faith, and God's got his purposes for it. Drop down to verse 13. We're skipping a lot of cool stuff, but just getting a taste. Therefore, uh, as you face the reality of faith under fire, Prepare your minds. It's not enough to get your feelings cranked up, man. You gotta decide, make a decision, and pre-decide to do the right thing no matter how you feel on Monday, you know? Uh, sometimes Mondays you wake up, uh, you know, you kinda go, do I really wanna go to work again today? Do I really wanna do, go to school today or whatever it is? Uh, hopefully you decide to go. It's not your emotions, it's your volition that kicks in. Prepare your mind for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely, you're looking for happiness in tragedy. There's nothing anybody's going to say to make you feel good about tragedy. There's nothing. You know, you can't be happy about tragedy unless you're mentally ill. But you can put your tragedy now in a much bigger context of eternity 
and you can process it. It won't totally destroy you. Uh, fix your hope not on your beauty or your good looks or your money or your job or your spouse or your, your health or your financial well-being. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you die of the rapture, and boom, there he is, and he's happy to see you. And I'm going straight for the feet, crying probably, and I think he's going to pick me up, dust me off, and say, welcome home, son. Uh, it's an awesome thing to think about, but probably need to think about it more. Drop down to verse 18. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. You can't buy your salvation with the best stuff. You can't earn it with your best works. Uh, but with precious blood, metaphor for all that's involved in the bloody, violent death of Christ, his substitutionary atoning sacrifice as a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Wow. Incredible theology here. Drop down to verse 1 of chapter 2. We're still looking at faith under fire 101 here. Therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Avon, the reason he tells these Christians to put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander is because some of them are being characterized by malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. That's why he tells them to pun it. You know, just get rid of it. But instead, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word that by it may grow in respect to salvation since you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to Him, this is Christians coming to the Lord on a daily, ongoing basis because He's the focus of your Christian faith, not the preacher or not anybody else. Uh, coming to Him as a living stone, uh, Jesus as the living stone which has been rejected by men and faced all kinds of suffering, but it's choice and precious sign of God. You also as little S stones, as living stones. Michael and Amanda Birch are little stones in God's capital C church. Olga Pollock is a little S stone in God's uh, universal church. Are being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Priests represent people before God. You have the privilege as a New Testament believer to represent yourself before God through Jesus Christ. To offer up spiritual sacrifices, which means in some ways putting up with the... Uh, difficulties of this world in faith acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, boom. That's faith under fire 101. Then we have our purpose statement, which is the hinge, and we've already talked about that a bit. Now let's look at uh, Christian living under fire 102, and he talks about uh, submission in the Christian life and suffering in the Christian life. And we'll see just a taste of some of that. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, the, the principle is always submit, Lindley, to human authority unless it's a direct sin to submit to human authority. So there are limits. You know, we don't, government is not God. And that's an important thing to remember nowadays. But, uh, in general, uh, we're supposed to submit ourselves to the president, whether he's a Democrat or Republican, I can remember being in a prayer meeting in Amman, Jordan, with a bunch of church leaders on our day off one time. I was over there. And, uh, of course, most of us in Arabic. But uh, they had us get up in little groups, and they read First uh, Peter 2.13 through uh, 17. And I thought, this is, this is wild, because, you know, when I read this in the United States, submit yourselves to uh, every human institution, whether it's a king and then it drops down to verse uh, 17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. I always go, well, we don't have a king, we got a president, and it just means who's ever your political leader. But you're sitting there in Amman, Jordan, 
And when it says honor the king, they mean honor the king of Jordan, King Abdullah. They're talking about a king, a monarchy, you know, uh, that's the son of the previous king. Uh, and uh, who was the king, who was the leader of the Roman Empire when First uh, Peter was written? And was he a Republican, a conservative, and a born-again Christian? Was he a Republican? Do you think the Roman Emperor was a Republican? Yes or no? Say no. Conservative? No, he's big government all the way. Think he was a born-again Christian? Mm-mm. He killed born-again Christians in Rome for his own entertainment. His name is Nero, not a nice person. Okay? Nero, not a nice person. That was his full name, you know? Uh, and yet, in general, you know, order is better than anarchy, you know? In general, unless it's a direct sin to obey an order, a specific law, submit yourself for the Lord's sake, for your testimony's sake. We ought to be, you know, positive citizens as much as possible. Uh, for the last eight years, a lot of us bit our tongues and we didn't, weren't burning buildings and breaking things and screaming. I don't remember any of that. Wow. These dangerous, radical conservatives seem to try to apply verse 13 here most of the time. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, for your uh, spiritual sake, to every human institution, even uh, Nero uh, is one in authority, or to local uh, Roman leaders, governors is sent by him. Ultimately, God uses human government to restrain evil to a certain extent, to punish evildoers, and hopefully to praise those who do right. Uh, For this is the will of God. That by doing right, you may silence this crazy slander about us being, you know, uh, anarchists or dangerous to the status quo. Uh, we're different than much of the status quo, but we're not violently dangerous to anybody. Christians aren't. Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Bottom line, honor everybody, respect everybody, including people with morality that blows your mind. You still recognize and respond to them as people with the image of God flawed and marred. You don't approve of their behavior or their choices, but you affirm and respect them and treat them by name and show them courtesy you'd show to anybody who's got the image of God uh, within them. Uh, Love the brotherhood. That's your fellow believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Boom. That's pretty powerful, crazy stuff there. Look at verse 21. I love this. You've been called for this purpose, talking about suffering, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. And think about it, none of his suffering had anything to do with personal sin, and most of us, most of our suffering is related to that at some level, or made worse by it as we deal with it, because a lot of times we're selfish and have a you know, pity party and, and, and do things we probably shouldn't do. Uh, and, but look at, look at Jesus. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he had no threats. But what he did, and this is big, if you circle stuff in your Bible, circle the last couple of lines in verse 23. You know his secret? Jesus just kept entrusting himself to God the Father who judges righteously. And look how his willingness to submit to the ultimate suffering of the cross pays off in the program of God generally and for your salvation if you trusted him for salvation specifically. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Hey, you can't be saved by what you do for Jesus. You're saved by what Jesus did for you. <laughs> you know, you're the savee, not the saver. Uh, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. That we might die to sin, live to righteousness, by his wounds you've been healed. You were continually straying like sheep, but now you've been returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Look at chapter 3, verse 1, in the same way, talking about submission. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. So that even if any of them are not believers, disobedient to the word of the gospel, 
They may be, maybe not, maybe, might be, subjunctive, uh, be one without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Being coming a Christian ought to make you a better wife, even if your husband isn't a believer or couldn't care less about coming to church. Uh, your adornment. Now, watch this. One person can total a marriage. Deuteronomy 24 says that. Jesus says that in Matthew 5, Matthew 19. First Corinthians uh, 7 teaches that. I'm talking in general. You know, you've got some kind of decent uh, husband, even though he's uh, not a believer. It doesn't say just punt him away. It says hang in there with him. There are many exceptions. I've seen it many times. I don't victimize people who are the victims, and sometimes people have much stricter understandings of that than God does, and we end up victimizing people who have been victimized by horrific uh, spouse situations. Uh, Charles Ryrie, you want to know something about Ryrie you didn't know? He had to get a divorce. wasn't his fault. Okay? I had a guy I didn't know well, but on, on graduation days at Dallas, back in my day, we had like a three-day celebration of graduation. It was a lot of things we, we did to celebrate graduation. And this one guy graduated with good grades, THM program, four years, and that week of graduation, his wife said, I don't want to be the wife of a pastor. I'm out of here. Boom. Now in the old days we say, oh my gosh, he's divorced. He can't serve, he can't serve God's people. He's divorced. Why? He's the victim, man. We're going to vilify the victim and criminalize him. She's got the problem, you know. Uh, breaks your heart, but it happens. You know, it's, there are some things in this world that don't make sense outside of eternity. Well, you can't say that. That's pie in the sky by and by. No, it's not. It's Christ in the sky by and by. And he's been here and came out the other side. So that's a whole different deal. Uh, don't let the liberals take away the essence of the faith just because they don't get it. You know, that's the whole point. Uh, your adornment must not be just external. Although, hey, we are visibly, visually attractive. So as the Puritan uh, preacher said, hey, wives, if the barn needs painting, you better paint it. So, uh, you know, do the best you can on that. But, I mean, don't go too nuts, you know. Uh, you know, don't obsess on your physical beauty because it's going to eventually fade, right? Uh, but let your real focus as far as the way you look and who you are, Lindley or Debbie or whomever, be the hidden person of the heart, the imperishable quality as opposed to physical beauty which does fade, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Until my grandmother got really, really sick and was not in her right mind, she had the most beautiful spirit. She had a really old body, but man, she had a beautiful spirit, uh, which is precious in the sight of God. Uh, drop down to verse 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. Kata nosen, which means according to knowledge. That means, Anthony, you can't totally understand women, so don't worry about it. You can partially understand your woman and just don't make the same mistakes over and over again, okay? Just figure out what pushes her buttons and because she's important to you, make what's really important to her really important to you and that tells her she's really important to you and that's the way you have a good marriage, you know? Uh, well, watch this. In the same way, live with your wives uh, according to knowledge. Don't make the same mistakes over and over again. Find out what pushes her buttons and push her buttons for her and she's the... You know, you're the only one who can be a, her husband, a good husband for. Her. Uh, then it says, most translations say, as with someone weaker, and that sounds very negative, but really that word 
means more exquisite. And, and I would say, hey, uh, Sue, which is, which is weaker? Uh, a tin can or a two million dollar Ming vase? If we put them both on this pulpit and push them over, of course it wouldn't have, let's say we had a tile floor here instead of a, a carpet floor. If we push the tin can over and the Ming vase over on the tile floor, which one's going to break into a million pieces? Yeah. It, that's what he's talking about, Carol. He's not saying you're weaker or inferior. In fact, the passage in context says that Carol is ontologically, at the level of being equal spiritually with her good husband, Ken. Uh, show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. She's your fellow heir. She's got the same ontological spiritual stuff you've got, you know, but she is a more exquisite vessel. So you've got to be careful with Ming vases. Tin cans, you can throw them around, it doesn't matter. Your wife isn't a, a tin can, she's a Ming vase. The implication might be we're more like tin cans than Ming vases, Michael. So just so you'll know, I'm sure Amanda will remind you of that. Look at verse 8. To sum up, all of you, this applies to James and me as much as anybody else. Uh, he's talking to these Christian congregations. Be harmonious. Be as easy to get along with as possible. Sympathetic. And that word really means empathetic. And we're making a big difference in English now between sympathy and empathy. And I get that. And this doesn't mean sympathy as opposed to empathy. It includes empathy. Brotherly, uh, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Wouldn't it be great if every Christian church was made up of Christians that were doctrinally and morally sound and that went out of their way to, if at all, if at all possible, if possible, you know, uh, get along with everybody, as Paul says. Sometimes it's not possible. But we all try so hard by the Spirit, Spirit of God to be harmonious and sympathetic, empathetic with one another. You need to do that at prayer meeting. You can't just say, you know, I've talked about that. Prayer meeting can be a dangerous place. You just lost your job and you're sick, and you go to prayer meeting, and Angie is always happy or seems to be happy most of the time. I love my job, and I went to the doctor, and I'm okay. I'm sitting there, I've just lost my job and I'm sick. And I can cry in my milk, I can resent her, resent God. Why why does why why does she have a good job and not sick and I lost my job and I'm sick? That's the danger of comparison. You gotta put that's just a little dot in God's big plan for you. Put it in that put it in its place and you gotta just keep on trusting and obeying God, you know? It's not fair to compare because you've got some things she doesn't have she wished she had. You know, it's, it's always like that if you break it down. So watch out. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead because you were called for this purpose to build up other people, especially believers, especially in the church family setting. Come on now. And, you know, blessedly, TBF, I think, has had a remarkable dynamic like that. It's not, you know, I've been hit a few times by friendly fire. I'm sure James has been hit a few times. You've probably had people look at you the wrong way or say something you didn't like. But you know, kind of get over it, and let's make it an effort, you know, to kind of accent the positive. Sometimes you got to deal with stupid things that are in the bulletin or th- something I said or did, and that's cool. But as I've often said, I mean this. Uh, you know, uh, the only thing I, I hate worse than excessive criticism is excessive praise. So if you got a, a, an objective black and white with me, just tell me. Don't tell five of your friends on Facebook to pray about how terrible Brad is. Just tell me what it is. If I can change it or fix it, I basically will. If I have to apologize for a mistake, I will. I try not to do it again. If I do it again, it's not to get you. It's just I forgot or I made a mistake again. You know, I can make the same mistake twice. Uh, uh, and so let's just deal with it directly. Uh, and I think most people are good about that around here. Um, 
The good thing is my memory's so bad, I can't remember anybody really being very mad at me, so it's just dangerous, you know. But uh, I'm sure it's happened. But uh, the flip side of that is praise. You know, Pastor Appreciation Day has come and gone. Praise God, you know. But uh, it's coming up again this year, right? Uh, you know, if you like it, you like James, you like me, for me, uh, about maybe 45 seconds is, I love it. I, but after that, I get very uncomfortable. So, I mean, just because it tends to be ridiculous. You know, so, uh, just if you like something, tell me. I'd like to hear it. But, you know, just, uh, I'll give you five minutes on the complaint and we can talk about it. I'll give you as much time as you want, you know, but really, uh, I'd rather just kind of process it. But I think verse eight would be, and nine would be a good thing to remember at any church. And I think we've enjoyed most of those dynamics most of the time as far as I remember. Yeah, but you don't know the terrible time that Nancy, you know, because she's so tall and, you know, imposing, you know, she's always wanting Scott to get that stool. Well, that's her stool, okay? And her feet don't fit the ground. And, and if you're short, she's not making fun of you because she's short too. I mean, some people read all kinds of crazy stuff and things like that. But technically, it's not her fault that she's short. So just say, so oh, no. Uh, 3.14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed because somebody actually noticed your faith. But sanctify Christ as Lord in the cauldron. Be ready to make a defense to people who honestly want to know why you actually believe this stuff. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you're slandered as a horrible person that's backward and repressive, people are going to find he's not backward and repressive. He just has some convictions. Maybe most of the culture doesn't have anymore, but he doesn't really hate anybody, right? That's kind of the way I feel. Uh, look at verse 17. This is something Joel Olstein will not preach. It's better if God should will it that you should suffer for doing what's right than doing what's wrong and not suffering, you know? You know, if you've got to draw a line, it's better to do the right thing, even though there may be repercussions. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Okay, almost done. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. Chapter 4, verse 3. For the time has already passed for you to carry out the desire of your average unbeliever, you know, having pursued a course of sensuality outside of marriage, lust, all kinds of desires that are wrong, not just sexual, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And all this, they're surprised you don't do that with them anymore, aren't they, Russell? They're surprised you don't do all that stuff anymore. Uh, in the same excesses of dissipation. You know, you got to get, what, different playmates, different play things, and different playgrounds, you know? Uh, and that's one big way that you stay on the, on the straight and narrow. Uh, for they'll give an account to God. Don't worry. It's all, all the... Uh, Scores will be settled properly. Look at chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. That's agape, seeking others' highest good. His love covers the multitude, smothers the multitude of transgressions. Just don't make a big deal about every little thing. I'm just not important enough to make a big deal about every little thing. And you probably aren't either. Verse 12. Uh, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal like cancer and loss of jobs and uh, spouses that you know ruin your marriage uh, among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing, like God's not aware of it or is out of control, happening to you. But to the degrees you share the sufferings of Christ, the intensity of unfair suffering, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with special level exaltation. You'll probably get a special medal for that or a crown. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Somebody actually noticed you believe this stuff. Uh, he, that's something he says several times in his book because the spirit of glory and of God 
rest on you, but make sure none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or even a troublesome meddler. You might say, murderer is terrible. Thief, that's bad. Evildoer, that's horrible. Troublesome meddler? I do that all the time. You know, I mean, you know, it's it's interesting, these vice lists. You know, we, we pick the three worst and say nobody could be a Christian and do those things. And then the things at the end, we all do all the time, but nobody includes that. It's weird. You're not doing that if you're abiding in Christ, is the thing. The thing one suffers as a Christian, based on consistency with the Christian faith, don't be ashamed, but in that name, glorify God. God's going to sanctify that. There'll be a rainbow at the end. I'm going to skip all the good stuff to the elders for lack of time, but we'll trust those guys will read that. Wonderful stuff. We'll get there eventually. Look at chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Keep on trusting and obeying, even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason to keep on trusting and obeying. And He'll exalt you at the proper time. Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. It's on your worst day. When you don't feel it, He still cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be spiritually alert and aware. Uh, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren in the world, in and around Uganda right now, for instance. And after you suffered for a little while, you know, for a hundred years or so, if you live that long, the God of all peace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, and strengthen, establish you. Salvation is what he does for us, beginning, middle, and end of the process. To him be dominion forever. And we could go on, but let's stop this way. When our faith is under fire, uh, believers should refocus on our Christian hope of ultimately being in the blessed, loving presence of the resurrected Jesus Christ and that center back on Him that can motivate us to continue to live out our faith despite the pain and hostility of the world. And at a practical level, I think this is what I'm going to be banging away for the next couple of months as we go through this book. Put your name in the blank if you're a believer. Brad McCoy is to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. Sue Smith-Raska is supposed to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord even though she's been sick seemingly forever and they can't figure out what the problem is, you know. It gets to be kind of expensive and tiresome to deal with this constantly. And you wake up and you're still sick every day. Uh, believers like Sue are to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. Okay, So, that's a, a, an introduction to the book. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at 1 Peter 1-5. through I'm going to challenge you to read the whole first chapter one time a day for the next seven weeks. And if you do, you'll be amazed at how well I teach next week. Uh, for extra credit, uh, you can sit down and read all five chapters. It takes almost 11 minutes and 37 seconds to be exact uh, to read all five. And if you do that, if you read through all five chapters every day this week and come back Sunday, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed to be here, uh, after you get your first donut and after everybody else gets the donut, I give you special pastoral permission to go get a second donut. No questions asked. But you can't brag about it, and you can't drive home. You're going to have to walk home to burn off the extra calories. So that's that's our promise. We're going to take a, we're going to close in prayer, uh, take about a 10, 12 minute break, uh, and then observe the Lord's Supper. Talking about being centered in Christ. Uh, James will lead us in an opening song. That'll be kind of the cue to uh, readjust and get ready to take the Lord's Supper. So uh, let's have a word of prayer.
Father, please take uh, this overall synthetic uh, survey of this beautiful text you've given us about faith under fire and help all of us to take it to heart. And I pray you'd excite us at the prospect of deeply delving through these uh, pages and this message you've given to us and preserved for us so that we might better represent you, draw closer to you, and that we'd be prepared for the next crisis because we know it's it's coming. Uh, I pray for those who are here today who have physical challenges or relational challenges. They're in the middle of a crisis. I pray you'd increasingly allow them to enjoy the eye of the hurricane kind of uh, dynamic, not denying the hurricane all around them, but as they draw closer to you and put their suffering in the much bigger context of eternity and the massless love of the Savior that uh, you've helped them to stay stable and consistent despite the pressures and the problems and the trauma they're dealing with. And we pray you be glorified in that process and the product of that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.